Well, hello there. I'm going to work off of the introduction that I got a couple of weeks ago. I'm Pastor Brant Bosserman, obviously not Pastor Dean. And uh, I'm here to uh, help your pastor to get some rest. And I'm all for that, being a pastor myself. And so it's my pleasure to uh, be able to bring the Word of God to you today. I'm going to read a passage that um, was read already in the Scripture reading, except for I'm going to read the same, same exact story in Mark as opposed to Matthew. And before I do, I want to take a moment just to reflect with you. Recently, a friend of mine from high school who was, um, well, a bit rough around the edges and uh, who after high school was, well, in, in high school was, was involved in drugs, involved in partying, and eventually even went to prison. And just last week, um, I was blessed to learn that this old friend from high school was just baptized. In his adulthood, he's uh, a man in his 30s, um, my same age. And this required of me a great deal of reflection because the group of guys that I ran with in high school, um, to be honest, they did well in school. They took seriously the labors before them in terms of academics. They were also regulars at Young Life. They would participate in various sorts of Christian activities. And it wasn't three weeks ago that I met with a group of these friends from high school and not a single one of them had an evident and obvious living faith. In fact, uh, to even begin talking about matters of Christ and the gospel would have likely made most of them very uncomfortable. And don't worry, I did my duty. I took the conversation there. But I was left and struck with this contrast of those who seem to be doing well and to this day in the eyes of the world are probably very successful versus this other individual who after a stint in prison was desperate. See, the gospel is for the desperate. And the passage I'm about to read is in all ways indicative of just that. So please, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll read 6 verses 7, verses 24 to 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out from your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. This is God's word. This passage follows the passage that I, I preached to you not two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, in fact. That passage that we read two weeks ago in the whole of Mark chapter 7 is about the issue of cleanliness. See, in the Old Testament, there is a distinction, a ritual distinction between the clean and the unclean. And we read in a variety of places that this distinction was maintained between the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations about her. 
Israel being specially consecrated to do a work of God, but the nations around Israel not having those same privileges. And so this issue of cleanliness has everything to do with the issue in the Old Testament of the relationship between God's chosen people and the nations. Here we read that Jesus attempted to retreat to a Gentile land. We're told the region of Tyre in verse 24. And it raises again this question, this question of cleanliness, Jesus being in an unclean land. We should note that this is probably something like the fifth attempt on Jesus' part to go and get rest for himself and his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. And as we will see, it will largely be an unsuccessful one. I never really noticed this before, but I kind of feel like after having preached through the Gospel of Mark at least seven chapters in, that the Gospel of Mark could possibly be subtitled The Gospel of Mark and the Vacation that Jesus Never Had. He's always attempting to go out and get rest, but he doesn't. What happens is that Jesus, in the midst of this attempt to retreat with his disciples and to give them some teaching and to give them some direct, direct care, he is in fact met with a Gentile woman who's begging him, interrupting his teaching session with his most intimate disciples. And we might think, given everything that we've read before, that we know exactly what Jesus would do at this point. After all, the last time we saw in this passage, we saw Jesus saying to the people that it's what's on the inside that counts, not your ethnicity, not whether or not dirt is on your body. And we might think, therefore, that when Jesus is met by this Gentile woman in need, we know exactly what he's going to do. It's simple. He's going to count the outsider as in need of his salvation and his blessing, and he's going to stop everything everything to bless this Gentile woman. In fact, when we look at the profile of this woman, it even heightens our sense of need for Jesus to respond to her immediately. Listen to what it says about her in Mark 7, 25 to 26. It says, after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. We're given a profile of this woman that is rather precise. She is from the region of Tyre, outside of the formal boundaries of God's special nation. Not only that, we're told about her culture. Our English Bibles will say that she was a Gentile, but the Greek is more literal. Excuse me. It's specifically that she was a Greek. Her culture was one. It was marked by polytheism, marked by all sorts of practices that we would count unholy, perhaps even to this day. Not only that, we're not only told the region where she was from, her culture, we're also told her race. She's a a Syrophoenician. That is to say, if nothing else, you can get the picture. She is not a son of Abraham. She is not a, a, a daughter of the promise. She is of a Gentile people. And of course, her circumstance Her circumstance is the most tragic of all. She's a daughter that, according to the text, is possessed by an unclean spirit. We see what this means in a variety of other passages in the Bible. Sometimes it will mean, if a child is said to be possessed by an unclean spirit, that the child will naturally, and by its own volition, inflict harm upon himself. 
We read of one young man who keeps throwing himself into the fire. Something, it would appear, would be similar in the case of this daughter for this diagnosis to be spoken about her. And we're told that she kept asking Jesus. In the passage in Matthew, we actually see a bit of an exchange take place, Jesus denying this woman multiple times to give her help. The phrase kept asking really speaks to us of begging more than anything else. She's begging Christ. Remarkably, Jesus does not respond the way we would expect. Jesus responds like this. It says that in he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We consider this answer of Jesus. We'll talk about the natural offense of it in a moment, but let's talk about the sense of it for, for the time being. Jesus interprets this woman's request for help as ultimately being a request for food. He says that it's not appropriate to take the food that is the words, the teaching that I am giving to my disciples right now and to redirect them to you and to your circumstances. Jesus interprets this woman's request as a request for a prophetic word of healing. And he says, it's not appropriate for me to quit teaching my disciples to do this. Jesus unapologetically responds that he must first feed his disciples. This speaks of the unique and remarkable privilege of Israel. The sons of Israel were called in Exodus 4.22, the firstborn son of, of God. God had owned this people in a covenantal sense, as members of his household. And that made for a remarkable set of privileges given to this nation. For example, the people, when they would come together and gather at the temple to worship, as we have done today, they would come sometimes singing Psalm 147, where it says, they would praise God, saying to God, God, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. These people would praise God that they had been given revelation, words of scripture that had been withheld from the rest of the world. Likewise, in the New Testament, we might think all of this is over. But Paul, when he speaks of his preaching of the gospel, says it this way in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There is even in the New Testament this sense of priority for God to reach and to address his chosen people prior to everyone else. You think about it, as offensive as this might be, it's true of you and your children too. We would all be terrible, terrible parents if we first attempted to evangelize our neighbors next door before we raised up our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Savior whom we know. Is this not true? If we first and foremost expended ourselves in our labors and our efforts to reach an unbelieving world with the gospel and neglected our own children, it would be to our shame. We have to look to those in our household we have to bring them to the waters of baptism. 
And we have got to preach to them their undeniable membership in Christ's people. And we have to celebrate these promises in these gifts. At this point, we ought to note that Jesus does not respond by saying to the woman that he has no care for her whatsoever. He says that he must first feed his disciples. Speaks of a matter of priority. Now we turn, however, to this phrase that is perhaps the most offensive. Jesus contrasts children with dogs here. The children being his own disciple, his disciples, and the dogs being the nations that reside outside the people of Israel. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the term dogs is pretty well a universally depreciatory description of a person. My daughters were to return home from school next Tuesday and to tell me that on the playground someone happened to call them a dog... I wouldn't respond by saying, hey, you know, look on the bright side, sweetheart. Maybe they meant to tell you that you're a loyal companion. Maybe even like man's best friend. That's all they probably meant. Nor I imagine would you. We all recognize that the term dog is not a particularly appropriate one for a person. In fact, in scripture, dogs are never presented in a positive light. In fact, they're known for their indiscriminate, obnoxious, and even violent behavior as eaters. Have any of you ever had two dogs put some dog food on the ground and seen the two dogs go at it? I remember my uncle and aunt, they had dogs. We didn't have dogs as a kid. We'd go over to their house, and there was a big dog and a little dog. Big dog's name was Teddy. Little one was Lily. If you put the food on the ground and Teddy was unrestrained, Lily would not be eating that day. So my Uncle Dick would hold the big dog and make him watch the little dog eat because otherwise the little dog would never eat at all. So it is in Scripture. Dogs are described as indiscriminate and even obnoxious eaters. Proverbs 26.11 puts it this way, Like a dog who returns to his own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Dogs? if they be hungry, may very well return to their own vomit for a meal. It's not all that abnormal. We also read that when scriptures are describing evil and heavy-handed rulers who overtax and oppress the people, they're described as starving dogs, never satiated. That's evident in Isaiah 56, 10 to 11. We read of the haunting howl of angry and hungry dogs as a descriptor of those who are bloodthirsty men. In fact, in the Bible, one of the greatest curses that could be spoken to a people is not only that they will die, but that they and their household will be eaten by dogs. It's an indication that they have lost all respect. There is no regard for them even after they have died. And as a result, they become food to scavenger dogs. Notably, in the New Testament, when we read of a man who is Lowly in every respect, he is described as a dog. If you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's in Luke chapter 16, verses 20 to 21. The contrast is put this way, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate of the rich man, that is, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. It says, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This Lazarus is worse than a dog. He is like food for a dog. These descriptors get worse and worse. 
Jesus, even in the New Testament, says that when we go out to preach and to share the gospel, there are some people that we ought to even refrain from pursuing or preaching to the, the gospel to any further after we can evaluate that they're behaving like dogs. Jesus puts it this way. Do not give what is holy to dogs. They will turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs, in Deuteronomy 23.18, are used to describe the indiscriminate behaviors of the male prostitutes in, in pagan temples. And I'll note, finally, in Revelation 22.16, that the new Jerusalem, heaven, is described this way, that it is like a house in a city, and outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters. Arguably, being called a dog is the single most effacing way to refer to someone in the Bible. David, when he's being fled by the wicked King Saul, puts it this way. He pleads for his life, saying, After whom has the king of Israel come? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? He refers to himself as a dead dog. This general sense that dogs are somehow obnoxious, somehow unholy, it prevailed throughout the world as it does to this day. In Greek thought, there was a school of philosophy called the cynics. We'd never think of this, but the word for dog um, is kuon, and the word cynic comes from that word dog. The school of cynical philosophy put it this way. See, they believed that all of the customs and all of the manners that prevailed among cultured people were a joke. And that the way that people ought to live is in their natural state without a regard for these social customs. As a result, they were a very uncouth school of philosophers who went around doing and saying things that were very off-color. They despised those things which were official and formal. So Diogenes of Sinope, he dwelt in a hot tub by the roadside sometimes be caught naked and things like that. And he manifested a lack of concern or discrimination for other people's opinions. You know, kind of search in vain for people in our day who kind of had this sense. But if you remember in the Seattle area in the early 90s, during the grunge movement in music, that is an almost perfect description of what a cynic would be. Hated all of the smoke and mirrors of glam rock from the 80s. Wanted to get right down to the basics of guitar and drum they carried about as if they didn't care what anyone thought. And it is interesting that a collaborative album that they wrote was called Temple of the Dog. Remarkably, remarkably, as if cynics of our day. Some people try to downplay Jesus' speech here because Jesus actually calls this woman not a dog, but a little dog. It's kind of like in Spanish when you add the word ito to a name to have a diminutive sense. Well, you go from Qon to Cunarion, and Jesus is calling her a little dog, if you will. And some have tried to argue that this is somehow slightly more positive of a connotation for the word dog. I simply ask you if you would feel any better about being called a little dog versus being called a dog. And so with this remarkable reflection before us, we need to, to leave with a few, a few observations and lessons. The first lesson that we have to leave with is that there is a great sin in trusting our first impressions of what anyone has spoken. We are all inclined to do this. And on the face of it, we have to admit Jesus' proverb, his parable, what he speaks, sounds very bad. 
See, it actually sounds, if you could appreciate it, it sounds racist, heartless, and cruel. Jesus refers to this foreigner, a woman at that and in need at that, as a dog. It is the sort of cringe-worthy statement that ends political careers. It is the sort of statement that would make you disassociate from a Christian leader or ministry if you heard it on their tongues. It is the sort of statement with which our media would go absolutely wild. Because it is the sort of statement that on the face of it is so offensive that most people would be unwilling to even consider the context of it. It doesn't even matter. Arguably, the inclusion of this statement in Mark's gospel, which was written largely to Gentiles, is in fact a proof of its authenticity. Because if you or I were writing a gospel to Gentile peoples, we would very well consider at least editing the part where Jesus, their savior, refers to them indirectly as dogs. How many of us, frankly, if we were writing this book, might have just skipped that part? We might have had the sense that Jesus had a good purpose for it, but we know not what it is, so we are not going to include it. Others of us, not as convinced about Jesus' holiness, we will come up with all sorts of unacceptable conclusions. We'll look at this passage and we'll leave and say, well, Jesus must not care about outcasts. Of course, that would be an insane and remarkable conclusion because Jesus has done nothing but care for outcasts all throughout this gospel. Others of us, not understanding that Jesus was completely free from sin and even sins of mistakes, might say, look, Jesus was tired. He was trying to go on vacation. And guess what? He made a little mistake. He got a little bit mad and he wanted this woman to leave him alone. This conclusion equally unacceptable. Jesus has been willing to be interrupted time and again by the lowly. Others of us might just think that Jesus flat out was a bit unwise and a bit uncouth and unmeasured in his speech. But once again, if we read the Gospels, Jesus always seems to have the right answer in the most intense situations. The greatest wisdom seems to drip from his lips. And then there might be others of us who say, Brent, you know, I don't care. I just don't think a pastor, a prophet, or much less a savior should ever speak that way. They should never talk like that. Most of us, frankly, are not self-critical enough to realize that when we say things like, I just don't think so-and-so should ever say X, Y, or Z, what we really mean is this. Every person in authority ought to be aware that there are pretentious people like me around, and they should cater their every word, manner, and message to my sensitivities. That perhaps is what we really mean. The remarkable thing that Jesus is doing in this passage Jesus, the sage, the wise man who has ever well-crafted words. What he is doing is exposing the self-righteousness of dogs like ourselves who read and look on, assuming that our first impression of his words is accurate. 
Brothers and sisters, there's a wild animal in all of us that would devour the most wise, most righteous, and most holy man ever to live as if he were a fool who barfed out speech thoughtlessly. At root, in each one of us, there is an animal who is proud. Have you ever considered that trusting your first impressions about other people, their motives, and their speech is dog-like? Have you ever considered that? See, when a dog goes around looking for food, whether it's his vomit or whether it's roadkill, the dog takes one look, gives one whiff, and goes and eats. That's what he does. If you've ever seen the sorts of things that a dog will willingly put in their mouth upon very little investigation, then you could appreciate how our first impressions and our leaning upon them is incredibly proud, and if you will, dog-like. I would ask you, how many of us right now have broken relationships with somebody because we have first trusted our first impressions and interpretations of other people's speech? How many of us have broken relationships right now because what you heard someone say, or maybe something that you heard that someone else heard someone said, you assumed immediately to be birthed of the darkest motives, barf of speech, if you will. We have got to come to terms with the fact that if we are inclined to interpret other people in this way, we would just as well crucify our Savior. We would just as well put the Son of God to death, thinking, thinking that we are infallible interpreters. See, Proverbs 14, 15 says this, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. I read this proverb at the beginning of every fall when I teach logic at Northwest University, and I impress upon people this thought. It's actually sinful to trust your first impressions of everything and to not consider your steps. That is to not investigate a matter. I ask you how many of you right now are on bad terms with other people because your words gave off an initial impression that were insensitive or rude and other people have issues with you right now, not having made any investigation of your motives or your intents. Speak an off-color comment. Did you make a gesture? Did you share an article online? on Facebook that offended? And do you yourselves turn around to investigate a matter to make sense of what was really attempted to be communicated? I should also alert you to the fact that investigation is not a matter of pulling together in your mind the four other times that someone said something you didn't like and inferring their motives. That actually isn't investigation. That's called building a conspiracy theory. An investigation is going to involve a direct inquiry at some point. And this is the very sort of thing that we as Christians, very sadly, are very often unwilling to do. Thankfully, you guys have something called a presbytery, and this means that someone cannot bring Dean up on charges for three things he said they didn't like and expect for that court to rule against him because those things sounded very bad. An investigation is going to have to be made. 
Some of us will say things like this. Well, I didn't have to make an investigation of someone's motives or what they intended to mean by what they spoke. Because I just can't imagine that anyone would use words like that without intending harm. Well, have you considered that a big part of being humble is accepting the fact that you might not be able to understand the peculiarities of how other people communicate sometimes? Have you considered the fact that being humble means even being willing to suspend judgment about another person, especially when what they said has no direct bearing on you? We are not taught to think like this, brothers and sisters. In fact, we live in a culture where we are taught We have reinforced time and again that our first impressions are to be trusted. All advertising is based on this. You've got 30 seconds on a TV, perhaps, to convince something that they need something, and we need your first impressions to be guiding the course of how you act, how you spend. We have things like documentaries. We can all watch a documentary leaving, feeling like we're an expert in whatever it is we learned about for about an hour and 20 minutes. And I ask you, how many of us on the basis of watching a single documentary are now quite sure that we understand all that we need to know about big business, big government, international politics, the war on drugs, the economy, the best way to give birth, who really killed Kurt Cobain, the essential link between the murders of Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur, and If nothing else, that the true but hidden message of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is that American astronauts never landed on the moon. You know what I'm talking about. We are all taught to trust our first impressions. And as a result, many of us, I don't know if you are one of those people, but you're always latching on to conspiracy theories. See, the the sin of latching onto conspiracy theories is not just that you're being foolish, it's that you're being proud. You're carrying on as if you were special, had special insight into the motives of other people and other things with very scant evidence, and you're able to infer the secret happenings behind the scenes that no one else is. Proverbs 25.8 says, Do not go out hastily to argue your case, otherwise... What will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? When we have these first impressions and we go out and argue on the basis of them, we land ourselves in hot water. But see, the truth of all of this is that we are like dogs, ready to bite on almost anything after one sniff, ready to pass judgment on any matter and anyone after an uninvestigated first impression. And maybe that is how you are left on first read of Jesus' words. This leads us to a second lesson. Lesson that there is a special boldness belonging to beggars. A special boldness belonging to beggars. It is very different than the pretentious spirit of dogs. We read in verse 27, and he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. When we meditate on this saying and this statement, we are left with but one conclusion. Jesus, in his divine wisdom, discerns that there is in this woman a true understanding of faith and with it a true humility 
with which to set forth a potent and powerful lesson. See, this woman is a Gentile and she is seeking Jesus out. That is anomalous in itself. How does she even know about this Messiah, this Savior? Even more in Matthew's account, she refers to him as the Lord, the son of David. She has a sense that this man is the Messiah whom the Hebrew scriptures have been foretelling for centuries. She engages in persistent begging as if she knows, as if she knows that this man can heal her daughter. With this in mind, we are left with this remarkable conclusion. Jesus' proverb in his language is not meant to shame this woman. It is meant to shame his disciples. Only verses before this, in the passage we read last week, Jesus is frustrated with his disciples, saying to them, are you so lacking in understanding when I teach you about God's intentions, his intentions for the law, to ultimately teach you about the uncleanness of our hearts? Are you so lacking in understanding? But this woman, this foreigner, this woman of a different race and a different culture, She understands better the intention and the program of the Messiah than his own disciples. This woman's response, it is beautiful, it is challenging, it is remarkable. There is not one protest from this woman about her designation as a little dog. There is only complete affirmation. Her response is spoken in verse 28, but she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. She begins by saying, yes, you're right. She says, you are right, Lord. And then she comes out with some of the most brilliant and altogether accurate theological reasoning you could ever come by. She says, yes, you are right, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. This woman is not simply advancing an observation about how dogs eat. She is advancing an observation about how God has worked from the beginning of time. God has always had for himself a special covenant people whom he has blessed with special revelation in his word. But he has never kept that word so powerfully contained in their midst His revelation has always spilled over in smaller degrees to the peoples, the nations, and those on the outskirts. This woman calls Jesus to the reality of how him and his father have always worked. She says, yes, Lord, I know that I am a little dog, but Lord, I know that in your overflowing grace, you have always been in the blessing business of blessing and feeding dogs like me right along with the most privileged of your children. Remarkably, Jesus Christ has his breath knocked out of him by this woman. This is incredible because Jesus all throughout his ministry is leaving his opponents speechless with his wise words. All throughout his ministry, the disciples are unsuccessfully wrestling with Jesus to put him on another course. And what the disciples were completely impotent to do, 
this foreign woman in distress was successful at. If this were a wrestling match, Jesus taps out with this woman's statement. Jesus throws in the towel. This woman is a woman of the faith of Jacob who wrestled with the angel of the Lord and that angel was overcome. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says to her without any further protest, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Matthew, it's put this way, oh oh woman, your faith is great. It shall be done as you wish. What we see in this woman is that saving faith is a begging faith. It is a trust in God's character, his promises, and his mercy over and above, or better yet, totally against what we deserve. It is a faith that begins by candidly admitting admitting that we are like dead dogs before our Savior. And this Jesus, his wise choice of words, was to show his disciples the bold faith, the bold faith of those who know themselves to be like dogs. Saving faith is a begging faith, but it is a bold bold faith because it appeals to the character of God in all of its prayers. Brothers and sisters, Let us leave knowing that we must never demur prayer on the ground that we do not deserve anything good. We must never cease to pray or be slow to pray because what we pray for is something for which we have no dessert. How many of us have ever felt disinclined to prayer because we have felt ourselves undeserving? We must pray always as dogs who have no hope but in God's promises and in his ways. And we must know that our God loves to have his own character, his promises, and his glory appealed to. There are theologians out there, neo-Orthodox theologians like Karl Barth, who would say that God is not limited by anything, not even his own word. This, my friends, is a lie. Our God loves to be called back to his word. Sad truth is that we are at a disadvantage, though. See, we have a society that is simultaneously blessed and yet cursed. Because most of us have never, ever had to beg for anything. We might have had to beg in the pretentious way that children beg their parents, as if their parents owed them something, as if their parents had to give them what they were begging for, as if they really deserved that object for which they begged. It's a lovely thing that we live in a society where we don't have vast classes of beggars. But we also have lost something in it. Many of us do not have any idea with regard to any human, much less God, what it is like to be completely reliant on their grace toward you. We've never experienced it. And as much as we would like to, we have a great deal of difficulty embracing that orientation toward our creator and our savior. Some of us will say things like, I don't mind looking like a beggar before God, but I, I won't tolerate looking that way before men. I would suggest to you 
that if you have an issue at heart with being disregarded or thought of as lowly or undeserving or unworthy before men, in your heart of hearts, you have a real trouble having that same orientation before God. This woman was a beggar. She had to beg not only in this instance likely, but as a woman who seems to be the only one interceding for this child, she probably had to beg a great deal throughout her life. And so it is we see throughout the Gospels, it is beggars who find their Savior, not people too proud to be called dogs. See, there is a boldness that we should all have in knowing our God's character against our undeserts. And I ask you, do you embrace your first impressions of your own trials? Do you look at your trials and really by practice and by disposition of your heart say, God must not really care about me? Or do you pray, Lord God, I know that you are in the business of helping the helpless. Vindicate me, O Lord, not for my glory, but for yours. Do you pray with a sort of faithful confidence that you are exactly in the sort of position to which the creator responds benevolently? Do you have people around you who don't believe in the Lord? And do you say in your heart, my Lord, my loved one doesn't believe and has continued to be obstinate to you. You must not have chosen them. You must not have elected them. Or do you pray, God, I know that you are in the business of letting some of your chosen ones wallow in the mire of sin for a time so that you can shine forth the riches of your grace. Please do that here, not for their good chiefly, but for your glory. Is that how we pray? I ask you, do we have the boldness of beggars for our own children? My goodness, brothers and sisters, how many times does Jesus have to heal children throughout the Gospels on the basis of their parents' faith alone? Before we will believe that God's blessings overflow to entire households. We should note, this girl is not just healed from a broken bone or a bad disease. She is set Free from the power of unclean spirits for the re- 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 renovation of her soul. Will we stand therefore on God's promises by setting our children before him in baptism and pleading not just once but daily for their salvation, their deliverance from the dominion of Satan and death, the sincere belief that our prayers will be efficacious? This is incredible, but this woman, she's like a matriarch. She's like Abraham, the female version. We look at this woman. Abraham was a dog too, a man of the nations whom God was utterly gracious toward and who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he and his offspring were made into a holy nation. Here we have a woman who begs like a dog, but who believed utterly in Christ. Oh, and her prayer was efficacious not only for herself, but for her household. But we're left with a third lesson. And every time we read of Christ's incredible works in the Gospels, we're always pointed to a further question. How is it that God is righteous and just in declaring mere dogs, self-righteous sinners, to be his children? And our third lesson, therefore, is that Christ, the Son of God, became a beggar. He became dog-like. 
that dogs like us might be God's children. This eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, bore the reproach of sin. And if we read the Gospels carefully, it is evident that he became a beggar. A dog despised by society when bearing the very wrath of God himself so that we might become the sons of God. Consider this as Jesus went to the cross. We read of the fateful Eve before his death. We see Christ begging. Mark 14, 35 to 36 puts it this way, and he went a little bit beyond them, his disciples, that is, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We would note that Jesus in this appeal at no point points God to his own infinite righteousness or his own lack of desert to undergo such a trial. He never appeals to anything inherent in himself. He comes as a beggar comes as a beggar, begging most of all for the Father's glory. In regard to the cross itself, Jesus has his begging denied so that our pleas before God would be heard. And when his son had borne the wrath of God to the full, the father wastes no time in vindicating his son or declaring what his work has accomplished. In fact, immediately when Jesus breathes his last breath, we read that the curtain which separated the temple, God's house, his holy place from the world, which separated in many respects the sons from the dogs, that curtain was torn in two. And God declared that on the work of his son, what he did, as a result, there is no longer any distinction There is no longer any distinction between a favored nation and the nation of the world, nations of the world. Let's put it this way. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This man, this centurion, this Gentile, he was able to see in Christ's death and the manner in which he died and perhaps the very tearing of the veil itself that this man was no mere man. This beggar who was put to death as if a dog was actually the son of God himself. The good news for us to believe, brothers and sisters, is that the Son of God humbled himself to the point of begging so that we might become sons of God with the fullest assurance that he will hear our prayers and pleas. Many of us know the gospel. We might have heard it for years and years, that Jesus died for our sins, rendered us heaven-bound, and that's where the gospel ends. But the good news is that God did not send his son merely to die for our sins and to make us righteous, but he goes a step further, and the scriptures say that he adopted us as sons and daughters. You have not received, says Paul in Romans 8.15, a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And here, therefore, is the paradox 
of our orientation to our God in prayer, we must always come to God begging as dogs in ourselves, but as sons of God through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We must always come paradoxically and boldly begging as those who know themselves to be dogs in themselves, but have the greatest imaginable assurance that our Father will hear us as sons and daughters. If you happen to be with us today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not believed on him, you have not been adopted as sons, I challenge you, how will you pray in your darkest hours? In your darkest hours when you look death in the face, not only for yourself, but for those who you love most, will you say no prayers at all? In your pride, your first impressions, perhaps, that there is no God. Will you pray, but do so with pride, a sense of desert, that this cosmic creator owes you something? These are your only options, friends, if you do not know the Lord Jesus. I challenge you to receive this Son of God and his death on your behalf so that you might be adopted as a son as well, able to appeal to your creator and redeemer in confidence. If you're a believer in this room today, I, I just ask, do you know and feel yourself to be a dog made into a son? Or would you refuse that language of yourself? Were it on anyone's tongue, even your creator and your maker, with his true evaluation of the depths of sin and depravity in your soul? I ask you, do you approach God with the boldness of a beggar? Do you neglect prayer altogether? when you were first sent away from prayer because you didn't get what you wanted? Would you be done with prayer altogether? Or can we learn from this woman who had so little in the way of natural privilege but teaches us, teaches us what it means to be a son and a daughter in Christ's household? Bow your heads with me. Mighty Lord, we come to you with the orientation of what we really are yet redeemed and reconciled to you in Jesus Christ. We come to you as people who have no desert to be here in this house called by your name and yet who are completely deserving in your son Jesus Christ so that we know that you will not withhold from us anything since you have already given your son as our atoning sacrifice. We come to you, Lord God, therefore, interceding that we would indeed live and act and carry about as people who believe this gospel that we have preached to us every week. That we would manifest that belief most of all in our prayers and in the disposition of our hearts. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.